I want to welcome everybody. I want to welcome Kimberly K and everybody on this podcast video that we are. I'm figuring out. I'm not real great at this yet, but I've got to get you on and get content and share this with all everybody I know, especially parents. And you help me a whole lot with my health and getting my my blood work and everything stool sample we we worked and it changed my life with the work that you did for me really took me from sick and just surviving with something to true health and you know i could eat and enjoy life and that's hard because we we known each other three four years now and it's been incredible so she's helped a lot of people um, she's a nurse practitioner. She's a teacher, I guess, professor in college. And she's helped a lot of people that I know in the area. I've coached several of her, her patients as health coaching clients with me and incredible. I mean, we've talked about you as much as anything else during the time. And I'm just great to you know know you and work with people and be like-minded with you. So, Tell us about yourself and especially leading into your childhood, where your health was, your purpose, because you're obviously someone that's in it for impact and purpose. And you care about people like changing lives and doing the the real nitty gritty, intense detail, almost a dirty work of getting true health and optimal health in a way that's beyond what others can think of. And it's. I've never been around somebody in person that truly wants the very best health and for everyone else as well, not just managing disease. So tell us about yourself in your childhood and anything you want to share and your health. And I know you've got an amazing story and testimony. So please tell us about that. Okay. Well, thank you, Tommy, and I appreciate you having me. So I am a family nurse practitioner, and I'm also trained in integrative medicine. Um, my childhood was very difficult. I had um, a father with substance abuse issues and a mother um, that ha had never and still has never emotionally connected with her children. So I grew up very much a loner and um, never had anyone nurture me or make me feel cared for or loved, which um, that is a huge gaping hole in health. It seems like a very weird thing to talk about at the beginning of a health talk, but our, our minds and our spirits are connected to our bodies in um, irrevocable ways. You have to take care of the whole human being all the way down to the soul for them to have physical health. Um, so I am in healthcare. I'm in integrative medicine. I'm in, um, CSI body as one of my clients told me the other day, I get down into the nitty gritty. I'm into it because I had this hole inside myself where no one ever really nurtured me or cared for me. And the way that I recovered from that was to nurture and everyone nurture and care for everyone else. And I've done that since I was a child. I've been the nurse, the vet, the stray kitten, the, anything that was hurt or needed care in any way, that's what I wanted to do. So from a physical perspective, um, there are so many things that happen in childhood that impact us for the rest of our lives. And I was born to a mother who smoked 
And um, she did breastfeed me for a while, which was um, that she didn't breastfeed her other children. She did breast me, breastfeed me for a while, but I had recurrent throat infections. And sometimes I had recurrent, very high fevers with no other symptoms. So I had a lot of antibiotics as a child. My mother is a nurse, so she didn't go to the doctor until someone was really, really sick because nurses just take care of things at home. Um, but I had strep throat very often. And so I would go drink the pink stuff. I drank a river of the pink stuff when I was a kid, amoxicillin. So every round of antibiotics has a permanent impact on the microbiome. And we have a microbiome from head to toe. We have bacteria that live in our brain that keep our brain healthy. We have tons and tons of bacteria in the gut. We have bacteria everywhere. And we have, we have other microbes as well. But every round of antibiotics affects a child. And two rounds of antibiotics before the age of two doubles the risk of obesity later in life, doubles the risk of, di of diabetes later in life. So um, that was not a good place to start with lots of antibiotics and lots of um, emotional neglect in the house. So by the age of probably eight or nine, I had daily headaches. Um, went and got glasses, looked at teeth, you know, all the things you look at for a kid that has headaches. And the treatment that I got for headaches was here's a bottle of Tylenol to hide in your book bag because you can't self-medicate at school, right? So here's your bag of Tylenol and you just take it whenever. Well, Tylenol is a pretty toxic drug and it starts to affect the way the liver functions and the way that you process toxins. So I got sicker and sicker. Um, in high school, I started to gain weight and feel very sluggish and depressed and anxious. And um, did, I had my first migraine in high school. That I believe is where I developed Hashimoto's. Looking back, I had symptoms of Hashimoto's. Unfortunately, I wasn't diagnosed with that until I was pregnant with my first child. So um, that went unnoticed for a long time. And for many, many people, Hashimoto's is, is not diagnosed for a long time. And sometimes it's never diagnosed appropriately. So um, bad gut, bad childhood, um, starting with pharmaceuticals very early in life. I mean, Tylenol is a pharmaceutical. And if you try to get it through the FDA now, it would not be approved because it's a dangerous drug. Um, so that led to, um, you know, with each child that I had, I have, uh, I have three children. With, with my first two children, just more weight gain, more fatigue, hair falling out, exhausted, depressed, anxious. And this was because I was seeing you know, conventional medicine practitioners and their answer for Hashimoto's was, here's your Synthroid and we'll check your levels every six months and we'll adjust, you know, rather poorly. So my thyroid condition was never managed. And the biggest contributor to any autoimmune disease is what's happening in the gut. And of course, no one was addressing what was happening in the gut. So um, through my college years, my college years were pretty stressful. I have had children from the very beginning of my college um, journey. So kids, work, going to school, um, gaining more weight, feeling more stressed out, heavily reliant on junk food and easy to eat food and just garbage, you know, the way that most um, Americans eat. Um, so by the time I got to nurse practitioner school, I was about 250 pounds and I was the sickest I had ever been. 
And I was on four medications by this point. I had high blood pressure. I had prediabetes, which in young women is called polycystic ovarian syndrome. I had um, recurrent migraines and I had high cholesterol and I was being medicated for all of them. And I wasn't even in my thirties yet. I was in my mid twenties. So I'm sitting in nurse practitioner classes and I'm thinking, how am I going to sit across from a patient and tell them that they need to diet and exercise and lose weight to get their blood pressure under control when I am dieting and exercising and I'm not, and nothing is in control. I can't get control of it. So I remember very clearly the day that I realized conventional medicine was not for me. And that day, while well, I was in nurse practitioner school, I went to see my family provider an MD and I said, look, I need help. I need advice. I need something. I continue to gain weight and I'm eating six meals a day and each meal is 200 calories and I'm exercising five days a week. And I don't, what, I don't know what else to do. You, I need help. And his, as he's walking out the door, because that's how they talk to you, right? With, with their hand on the doorknob, as he's walking out the door, he says, eat less and exercise more. And I'll see you in six months. Eat less. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And you're starving. Eat, what, am I an earthworm? I yeah. mean, how many calories? How many calories do you want me to drop here? So that was when I started to look at other contributing factors to weight gain. And um, if you look at studies on childhood adversity and events that occur in childhood, uh, the things that contribute to obesity in adult life, they all start back there. Um, how you're fed as an infant and how many antibiotics you're exposed to and how well you're nurtured and cared for because um, what you put in your mouth and how much you exercise has, has less to do with your weight than what your stress hormone levels are doing and what all the other hormones are doing in the symphony of hormones. So if you look at, at the childhood and you see a lot of adversity in any in any area, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, having someone die and that grief that you experience. But the more of those events that occur in childhood, the higher the likelihood that you end up with diabetes and high cholesterol and high blood pressure, because those are all tied up into what your cortisol is doing all the time. Cortisol wants you to hold on to fat so that you can survive the famine. Yeah. So if you've been in a famine your whole life, then you're gonna be in survival mode all the time. Right. So it doesn't matter how little you eat or how much you exercise. Until you get fat storage hormone under control, you're gonna store fat and that's just how it is. So that, that was my first, um, that was my aha moment that there must be something better than this. <laughs> so even as I was going through nursing school, I was researching other things. Um, the first thing that I looked at was, um, Perhaps content of diet is more important than quantity of diet. So that was totally. the first I started doing elimination diets and, you know, what makes me feel better, what makes me feel worse. And very, very quickly, I realized that wheat and corn give me migraines. And when I don't eat wheat and corn, I don't have migraines. So that was that was my first foray into um, into I guess we, it was it wasn't integrated medicine yet, but that was that was when I began my journey. So um, that was 250 pounds. And within, I would say three years, I was down to 140 pounds. Wow. And that was not by eating 1200 calories a day and <laughs> exercising until I wanted to fall over. It didn't work like that. 
Um, and my first job as a nurse practitioner when I graduated was in a neurology clinic. And in, the, in, in Jones County, the neurology clinic at that time was neurology, orthopedics, um, psychiatric care. We were doing all kinds of things that weren't just neurology. And the reason that was is because when you had a patient that you absolutely couldn't help, you either dumped them on the psychiatrist or the neurologist. So we got every, every patient in the area, I would say in four counties, every patient that someone was lost on. And that, that I hate that those patients had to live through that, but it was my training that that's how I, I learned to start to help patients that no one else could help. And that's when I started digging into what got you here. Yeah. Because I can't treat the person in front of me until we go back and treat the things that led up to this. Um, so, you know, at this point, when you sit down to have your first visit with me, it might take two hours for me to dig through all of that. Um, and then I might spend 10 hours at home, you know, over the course of a few weeks working through that. Um, so I went to George Washington University um, for my master's degree in integrative medicine. And um, really by the time I got there, I'd already done all of that research and they didn't teach me a ton of things I didn't already know because I'm, I'm a self-motivated learner, but mostly I just wanted to have that legitimacy um, yeah. to say, yes, I practice integrated medicine and this is why, and this is where it came from. But I had done all that research over the years that I went through nurse practitioner school and, and did my five years in, in neurology. I'm not sure. Did I miss anything that you wanted no, to hear? <laughs> that was that was exactly what I wanted to hear. And you, okay, you kind of right. taught me a little bit in there throughout some of that. So, yeah, 1,200 calories is torture. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I don't. And what I liked about you, what I, when I first heard about you, was there's just some lady in Laurel that is talking about butter and saying that butter is good. <laughs> and I want to meet her because everybody else says butter is bad. And I'm like... Yeah, because my wife, Lori, was like, hey, uh, she's talking about butter and all these great things. And they had to like they blew up her Facebook and she had all these, you know, way too much. I said, yeah, people are starving for great knowledge and someone that's actually done it. And I mean, 110 pounds is mm, that's amazing. That's that's work. That's it's more to it than what you let on there. That was kind of a humble. It was, it was a lot of work, but it, it really was not torturous work. Yeah. You know, we, we've been led to believe that losing weight is torture. Um, and that going on a diet is the same thing as stabbing yourself in the head with, you know, with a screwdriver. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to diet. Well, what I was learning was that diets don't work. Yeah because your body adjusts to how many ever calories you give it. So if I eat 1200 calories for eight weeks and then jump up to 2000 calories, well, my metabolism is way back there at 1200 calories. So I'm going to regain everything I lost plus, you know, a few more extra pounds. And every time I go on the diet, I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to be a little bit heavier and a little bit heavier. So what I was learning is that if you're kind to your own body, it responds better. Yeah. Just like if I'm kind to you, mm-hmm. our relationship is better. So I was learning how to love my body the way that it, it deserved and, and to treat it in the manner that it deserved. And sometimes that's counterintuitive. For some people, that is 
I don't want you to exercise anymore for the next few weeks. You're killing yourself. Your body thinks that you're in a famine and you're running for zombies at the same time. Yeah. So slow down, <laughs> give your stress hormones some time to calm down. And, and everyone responds to that once, once they buy into it. Yeah. It's a little bit more difficult to get clients to realize that just because someone's been yelling at you for your whole life, that it's diet and exercise, diet and exercise doesn't mean it's necessarily true. And some people had beautiful childhoods and there was no adversity and there was no trauma. And, you know, maybe their microbiome bounced back from that round of antibiotics and they, they don't have a stress hormone fat storage survival problem in their adult life. Fine. But just because you do doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you should feel guilty about that or that you should torture yourself with yet another restrictive diet and even more exercise. It probably means the opposite. It probably means that you need a good eight weeks of slowing down, doing some yoga, sleeping late in the morning and eating as many healthy fats as you can get your stomach to, to digest and recover. I mean, what would we do if we pulled someone out of um, Syria, we pulled someone out of a famine, how would we treat them? We would love them and nurture them and, you know, fatten them up with good, healthy food, not with garbage. So the, the 110 pounds was work, but it was all mental work. It wasn't physical torture. It was just learning to understand me, learning to understand human physiology and learning to understand how everything that's ever happened to you contributes in some little way to what you become. Gotcha. So uh, my next question is because I've done the, I've coached the clients that won't track this and they won't, um, they won't just really buy into what you're doing. They're like, life's hard. There's this. And they just keep on and on and on. So what I'm, I loved about you is you covered the trauma and the emotional side of things and you dug into that, but there was actual data that we're going off of, not just symptoms. And like how detailed would you like to get with a, a client in lab work? And, you know, I know there's certain symptoms if they don't pop up, there's no reason to spend money on a test, but is it a general consensus of as much data as possible, the better you can do your job and the better they can learn? Or how does that work exactly in your preference? My, my preference is always to have as much data as I can get. Um, the more data I have, the more points, you know, in that scatter plot that I can look at. So when I look at a patient, it's like my mind has an explosion and there's all these little dots everywhere. And if I can make them connect in meaningful ways, I can do better work and I can do work. I can do faster work with less pain and agony, um, the more data that I have. And a lot of times that data actually comes from my conversation with them. And it comes from multiple conversations with them over time, which is why I love to have patients come for a long time, because the more they see me and trust me, the more they tell me. And sometimes it's months before the the one trigger actually comes out and we can deal with it. So most of my data comes from that conversation. However, the more lab data we can get and the um, the more we can get a patient to see objectively what it is they're doing every day, which is why we have them log things. Mm -hmm. We have them log things so that they can objectively see what they're doing. Many people are so accustomed to just 
you know, well, I only ate one meal, except you picked all the leftovers off, to, off of every kid's plate and you also ate that. And then you ate in the car on the way, you know what I mean? So yep. um, when you're looking at the hormonal symphony, if you're not giving your body downtime from eating, then your body's not processing all those calories back out. Um, so it's, it's not about how much you ate during that day, but it might be about how often you ate. Yep. Eating six, seven, eight times a day, your leptin and cortisol just can't deal with that. So when it comes to lab, though, you know, a lot of times you have to pay for the lab that you have done. Yeah. So I, I usually come up with, um, this is what I need to get started. This is what we're going to have to have at some point. And these are the things that I would love to have, but I could probably get you better if we didn't do it. Or maybe if we did it in a year, you know, kind of that, that sort of presentation, because really the lab work is for me to to show the patient what I already knew. When I draw lab, I can almost predict with 98% accuracy what the lab work is going to say. Very rarely am I surprised. But what the results do is it shows the patient, you know, what I told you the first time I met you is true. And here's the data. Yeah. And then we have a baseline and mm-hmm. we can track it along with the way that you're feeling to make sure that we're moving in the right direction because integrative medicine is very much individualized. There is no one size fits all anything yeah. at all. Um, even one size fits all leggings actually don't. At all, you know. So, um, (laughs) you are right there. (laughs) Yeah. So the more the more data we can have on an ongoing basis, the the easier it is for the patient to have buy in, but also for me to see things coming and to stop them before they get there. So, for instance, if a patient has had a toxic exposure. Um, like a chemical exposure at work or a toxic mold issue in their home or, you know, some sort of toxic uh, exposure. When I start to detox that patient, I don't want them to feel worse before they feel better. That makes it harder for their body to recover. And sometimes the lab work will show me before they start to feel bad that their inflammatory markers are going up instead of down. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's on a case by case basis, but I would agree with you in saying that the more data you have, typically the easier it is for you um, to help the patient. Sometimes that can be overwhelming, even for a practitioner. You yeah. know, I do consult with other practitioners. Um, they bring their their case studies to me, and I help them work through them. Um, and one of the doc, one of the MDs that I graduated with from George Washington is is in the practice of in the process of moving out of the ER into his own clinic. So one of the first patients he got was a fam, you know a family um, with toxic mold exposure, and that's one of the most complicated processes to work through. So um, I do that as well. I help other practitioners sort of work through all of that data, and. It can, it can be a little overwhelming when you're first getting started. So um, both from a patient and a practitioner perspective, sometimes less is more. But at yep. some point, you would like to know all of the things about the patient. Yep, no doubt. The reason I asked that is because it, it really helped me a lot. I knew, and like you said, 98%, you knew what was going on with my gut when we talked about it. And, you know, I had managed it with the right quality of food, the right elimination of this and managing my 
macros and all that just torture of making sure I don't put myself to sleep, narcoleptic or whatever. And right. It, but we knew that we had all this issues because I've attacked that problem for so long in so many different natural ways and all this stuff. But whenever you told me that point of it's resistant to this, 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 and this being candida, I was like, whoa. And then you put a, a direct plan in place that's like, yeah, I can see how it could be resistant, but that plan was we do this, we do this, and then this happens. And then we, you know, re you we reseeded my gut at the end, and that was like that was all the difference in the world. Cause I've killed it 10 times, 20 times in my life, but there's nothing to replace it. And with your help right. that I was able to replace it. And I mean, within three, four days, it was never experienced anything like that, you know, being right. C-section and my mom with terrible nutrition and probably a bottle my whole life, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. But like, I really wanted to touch on that because, and ask you that question because people are hesitant to find out information. I had a, a client that was one of your patients that didn't want to do any genetic testing. They didn't want to get into any of that because they didn't want to find out that they had been neglecting something that could have affected their family. And it was guilty. And I did, I, I really like to get that away from people because, or get them out of that frame of mind, because if you don't know it, you, you can't be guilty of something you were ignorant to, you know? It, right. And, but you know, the genetic testing that we do for, um, nutrigenomics or, um, affecting someone's health by gearing their nutrition towards their, their genetic code. Um, the, those types of, of genetic tests don't tell us about the diseases, yeah. you know, Tay-Sachs and it, those kinds of things aren't on there. So when I've had patients that were resistant to genetic testing and I don't do a ton of it, um, I'll do it if I'm finding that I absolutely can, I get someone better no matter what we do, but I, I don't do a ton of it. Um, but what you're looking for are, um, genes that have been switched on or off depending on you know all of the environmental things that make up who we are and how we got here so that that's epigenetics we're, we're looking at epigenetics we're yeah. not looking at you know what sort of diseases are you carrying because all of our genes have an on off switch mm -hmm. and those genes get turned on or off depending on what's happening in utero yeah. Um, at the time of birth, such as C-section or vaginal birth throughout the childhood, even what your grandparents lived through can affect um, the genes that you have turned on and turned off. And the reason that we care is because there is data to support that X, Y, or Z can help you switch that gene back off or at least help you mitigate the consequences of that gene being turned on or off. So um, one of the... Um, one of the illustrations of that that I give are in World War II, there was this uh, population that uh, basically starved. I mean, they could not get food during the war. And um, after the war was over and everybody was fed, a lot of the babies became obese and diabetic. The rate of obesity and diabetes in those children was 20 times higher than it was at any point prior to the war. And that persisted through several generations. So what happened was mama went through a famine, a serious famine, was starving, got pregnant, 
and had already had a gene switched on for survival because yeah. if if mother survived the famine that means that gene got turned on mm-hmm. and it helped her conserve energy well if that gene's on when she passes her genetic code to the baby the gene is already on but there's plenty of food so that baby is in fat storage survival mode because of mama's famine but he's eating yeah and then his children still have that gene turned on and then his children still has that gene turned on. So it can persist through generations. And if you look at um, Mississippi, the two populations that uh, have that epigenetic um, burden, I guess, would be in the Delta, where we had a lot of slaves and our Native Americans. They were not fed well. There were a lot of times that they lived through famine. And if you look at their rates of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, vastly higher than the Caucasian population because they, their ancestors lived through tremendous adversity and famine and those genes got turned on. And unless something is done to help mitigate that um, gene being turned on, turning it off or just helping prevent that for future generations, then it will perpetuate as, as you can see, I mean, we're 200 plus years from those situations and their, their rates are still high and they're dying from other things uh, at a much faster and higher rate than Caucasians. And it is not, no matter what politicians say, it is not because they don't get the same kind of health care that Caucasians get. They go to the same doctors. They go to the same hospitals. They're given the same medicines and the same advice, but their genetic background is different and their epigenetic background is different and they're not being treated differently. They're being treated the same and it doesn't work like that because their background is different. You're right. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. What I was alluding to was MTHFR. I have the same gene and your client, his wife was opposed to it. And his children, he was thinking, okay, I'll probably give it, I think it's homozygous. He said, I'll probably give it to them. And we were talking about working with them as well to, you know, fully get the whole family on the, you know, wellness Mm -hmm. journey and moving everybody in that direction. So they, you know, there's obvious symptoms when your hormones are raging and changing and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And, you know, he he saw great results and he was really excited about it. And his children were like, hey, dad, uh, I'd like to do that, too. To, And he was searching on his own, being a great father and trying to find ways he can help his children as well, which, you know, you do the best you can and move on. That's just a simple 23andMe test. Uh, that nutrigenomics right. is, that's genomics. intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one there is a big well, t- Right. Um, I guess really the only way to- – the way that I would reassure someone would be that there is absolutely nothing that an MTHFR test is going to tell you that would lay any burden of guilt at your feet. I mean, there's, there is nothing about that test. It's just telling you one tiny little snippet of how you metabolize certain B vitamins. That's all it is, but it is important because it helps you detoxify all the crap that you're exposed to. So if you have a lot of um, changes in the MTHFR gene, 
negative changes, then you have to treat your body differently. You have to expose yourself to less toxins. You have to work a little harder. You have to avoid certain kinds of B vitamins and take better ones. But there is nothing about that test that would lay the burden of guilt on you for any reason. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think maybe that um, some people hear genetic testing and they're really thinking about all those diseases that can be tested for, but that's not what we do in, in nutrigenomic, nutrigenomics or, or epigenetics. We're not testing those things. That's good. To what we're looking that. at. Yes. What we're looking for is actionable data. And yeah. I think that what scares people the most about genetic testing is you're going to find out something you can't fix. Yeah. I don't want to find out something you can't fix. You're not going to keep paying me if I can't fix things. You're right. I'm going to find things we can fix. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and the, right? And the beauty of um, testing these particular gene SNPs, um, polymorphisms, is because they're actionable. Mm -hmm. If they weren't actionable, I wouldn't test them. And I'll only test the ones that I can act upon because it, it makes an impact in your life. And if you're ever going to have any more children in their lives and then their children. And it can positively influence the other things that you don't have any other genes that you don't have any control over. I mean, because epigenetics, you start switching all the good ones on and switching bad ones off. I mean, it, I'm not saying it's decreasing your risk for cancer. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, you increase a lot of making, good. Yes, absolutely. That, I mean, that's the whole point. We're, we're looking at these polymorphisms so that we can uh, improve current physical health and reduce the risk for chronic illness and problems later in life. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, with MTHFR, if you're fixing all of those things that are standing in the way, then your risk for cancer goes down dramatically. Yeah. Your risk for birth defects goes down if you're going to have more children. Um, all kinds of things improve. Just your your general um, health and well-being, the way that your brain runs, the way that you sleep at night, it affects a lot of things. Yeah, and you can look back. I mean, even in my family, I can look back and see like my grandmother on my mother's side died of cancer. My mother currently has cancer. Um, my grandfather on my dad's side, he had prostate cancer. He beat it, probably has colon cancer now. We're looking at, you know, doctors mm -hmm. are, so there's cancer everywhere and it, I can't sit here and say the whole genetic thing. Like I'm probably going to get cancer because that's what genetic testing tells me, but I can look at my lineage. No, I can epigenetically look at it and say all the things I'm doing is going to turn off the oncogene and all of that stuff that, you know, other factors that contribute to it. And it gives you power as a patient to say, yes, I can do things that are going to, you know, use my gen genetics to my advantage and turn on things and turn turn on good things and turn off bad things in a way that you know is individualized by testing and that's the same for stool testing for blood testing urine hormone i mean all of that like even with mold testing your home your environment the effect that it has on it i mean i always tell everybody that asks me anything about that what about testing test all you can if you can afford it and mm -hmm. your insurance will pay for it Data is the best thing, prevention in a way of bad stuff, but mm -hmm. also optimization. So I don't want to take forever on this. I want to ask you this question because I can talk about that till cows come home. But <laughs> I think when I do my dissertation, it's going to be on epigenetics and it's probably going to be on Native Americans and um, African Americans in Mississippi because That's no one awesome. has done that, that study. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, epigenetics is fascinating to me. 
Yeah, me too. That's awesome. L- Lori, that's her favorite thing is genetics. She's like, if I wouldn't have been a nurse, I'd have been into genetics and lab <laughs> testing. But So um, I want to ask this question pertaining to the, the audience of when you dealt with parents and when you deal with parents and with family and, you know, I know you've got a great, you know, certain client that did great with us. You diagnosed somebody that had a, a pretty rare dis- disease, disorder, and you have worked directly with entire families together. Like you work with my family, with my son and, you know, my daughter's born and you, your all of your teachings though built and your lessons and the way you approach life, you know, built a, a like a basement of content and of actionable tools. So when you work with families, how does that work in, you know, you, you deal with the parents, they get well, the kids follow suit or sometimes vice versa and the friction or the, you know, the positive change you see in improving a kid's life or parents, how does that work out for you when you see patients in that way? Well, I mean, families are as individualized as individuals are. And um, usually when I treat a family, it's because the sickest one has come to see me. Um, So I start, I usually start with the sickest one, Mm -hmm. especially if the sickest one is a child, because for a parent to take care of a sick child can be a little bit overwhelming. Sometimes no one is is really sick, but everyone just wants to get better. Everyone just wants to feel better and have more energy and sleep better at night. And with those families, I usually work with everyone at the same time because the changes we're making are very similar. You know, we're all going to move to a whole foods diet. We're all going to get rid of the junk um, in our lives. We're all going to go to bed a little earlier and sleep a little later. You know, we're all going to do those self-care things that Uh, work for everyone. And then we're going to start to do lab testing. And if finances are an issue, then I go back to who needs it the most. And, you know, we start there and then get everyone else's lab work as we move along. Um, You can usually predict if you have biological parents with biological children, you you can usually predict things a little bit better and you don't have to do as much testing. Um, When I'm treating a family who's had a toxic mold exposure, Um, I have to treat everyone at the same time because the cascade of events that happens when you take care of a mold issue, um, you know, you have to have the home tested and treated and people have to move out and then you have to move back in. It's a whole lot easier for that to happen for everyone at the same time, if possible. Um, But sometimes I would say most of the time my family work has been, I start with the sickest one, the one that came first because Families always bring the sickest one first. Uh, Not always, not always, but usually. Um, And then as that one starts to get better, the siblings or the mom or the dad or, you know, other people are going, wow, I want to feel better. I want that benefit for myself. And that makes it a lot easier to sell as you're seeing everyone else in the family because they have this shining example of how you actually can improve um, health issues and not just medicate them. That answer your question. That was perfect. Yeah, and one the to build on that that question is prenatal nutrition or because I mean that's really important to me because my like a lot of mm-hmm. what I'm the reason I'm health coaching the reason why I'm digging into something that a lot of people don't touch family wellness a child's wellness you know what to feed the kid I mean how parenting around food and 
I mean, that's a very touchy, sensitive subject that everybody's like, what's well, what I do with my kids, but you do what you want with yours. Mm -hmm. You know, that happens mm -hmm. a lot. And I mean, I know I've learned the hard way, but prenatal nutrition, prenatal health care and getting like your gut right, especially mom, getting her gut right mm -hmm. helps with vaginal, you know, the right microbiome there. So you set the kid up for the best, you know, gut health and microbiome as well, mm -hmm. the whole body. And I've noticed mm -hmm. like even women that have, um, and I want to know what you, your take on this, but I've noticed a lot of women that don't have um, the best health and you can tell there's a microbiome issue. There's an imbalance or there's some real issue going on, not mm -hmm. screaming, but some are. And then the kid comes out and the kid's not exactly, you know, healthy or they have a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. They're still vaginally birthed, which is great. And then they're still breastfed, but they just don't, you know, there, there's like some big glaring things that are, whoa, I mean, what is your take? I mean, have you dealt with some people with you get the prenatal nutrition right and it goes better or is it more you deal with it on the, the, the back end of it, like a sick kid or a, how does that work? And what's your. Uh, yeah, I'm it's interesting that you have that perspective because I, I've always felt like to make the biggest impact on a population's health would be to start with preteens and adolescents before they're even thinking about children. Wow. Um, and, you know, in an, in an optimal world, everyone would be healthy across the spectrum. You know, we would birth healthy babies and we would raise them through a healthy childhood and they would, um, you know, have a, a couple of years in their adolescence where they did stupid things, but their body would be resilient to, yeah. you know, alcohol consumption and, all that nonsense you do in high school, but their body would be resilient. So by the time they cleaned up their act and started to think about having children, they would have a beautiful foundation, but that's not the world we live in. Right. Um, it would be great if we could get preteens or adolescents and, um, and I've worked with a lot of them because they are so sick now. I mean, we just don't have healthy children in the United States anymore. We don't birth healthy children and we don't raise healthy children. Um, but from my perspective, the, the biggest impact on how healthy your baby is going to be is what you did before you ever got pregnant. If you wait until you're pregnant to make changes, it's too late. A lot of things are already done developing by the time you know you're pregnant. Yeah. So um, I think that we can birth healthier babies. But if you look at the toxic burden in the United States and the things that we eat, the things in our water, the things that we breathe, you know, glyphosate is found in umbilical cord blood. So we're getting roundup to our babies before they're, as soon as they have a placenta, they're, you know, being sprayed with pesticide. So a perfectly healthy mama who's done all the work still may not give birth to a healthy baby because we just don't have that kind of environment in the United yeah. States. And we don't think about environment as an extension of our bodies. And you, you cannot treat a patient without also treating their environment and that that's their, their stressors, their burdens, but also, you know, what they're eating, breathing, um, smelling and absorbing into their skin. So um, I, I, you shouldn't wait until the baby gets here to try to fix problems. The earlier you can get started, the better. And even if that, even if you're, so when I treat um, females, preteens and adolescents, 
the things that I do for them are not only to make them feel better and to get them healthier, but to set them up for better reproductive health. Um, because so many adolescents have hormones that are just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about all the endocrine and hormone disruptors we have in our food supply and in our water, it's not surprising. Um, but when you do all those things to rebalance their hormones and get their gut healthy and get them detoxed, then they're set up for a much healthier pregnancy down the line if they maintain those changes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, what you said about um, that the baby was vaginally birthed and breastfed and still has issues, baby can only get what mama has. And if mama doesn't have the microbiome that the baby needs, baby ain't gonna have it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if you breastfeed for six years, you, you can't give it to the baby if you don't have it. Um, and, and their prebiotics and probiotics are coming from your breast milk. So if you can't get those prebiotics and probiotics up there, you can't get it to the baby. So baby's health starts before you ever conceive. Wow. Yeah. And that, and that's also, that's also dad mm -hmm. because dad contributes a lot of epigenetic changes that, um, affect the baby's health long-term. Yeah. When I was, when we were looking at getting conception with my son, that was one of those situations is like, where can I make the biggest impact? And it was before we ever even conceived, like, if I got to get my health right, then I can, you know, give the best genetic code. And I mean, there's a lot of times where men are like, well, I mean, I did my part and now it's up to her and she's got the hardest part, but <laughs> many times that don't happen. They're like, well, I just, you know, and I want right. everyone to know that and to see that and to, you know, build their family from that, but also to know that they have someone in the world that can, you know, get a bad situation where you've done the best you can and then the rest is out of your hands and you can go to someone that can definitely, you know, analyze everything and fix a lot of the problems and rebuild and allow get set them up so their body can heal itself in a way, but a lot of parents don't know what you just said. No, they've never heard of it. Their doctors told them different mm -hmm. or didn't tell them anything at all because they're walking out the door. Mm -hmm. And that was my biggest point of getting you on here and, and talking about that because my my biggest intention as a health coach and you know really is like you said, I, I healed a lot of myself by helping others heal the mm -hmm. same similar issues and caring for others. And I, I can look back at my mother's life and her history and very bad nutrition, very bad drug use, knowing that happened. My dad didn't have good nutrition. You know, he's probably better of the two, but and it impacted me in so many ways. And then my, you know, the vaginal birth, the biggest important part about that, you know, one in two births today is C-section and that's. There's no micro birthing. There's none of that. It's like rip it out, wash the baby off, stick it in a warmer, get it out of my room. Y'all do all the things. And yeah. that I, I wish people knew the effect that that has on our, our whole population because our mental health, yeah. I mean, how much of our mental health is affected by our microbiome, our gut. And we're in the middle of 80% 80 of those, those, neurotransmitters come from the gut exactly so 80%. i mean we're in the middle of a pandemic and mental health is crazy right now i mean it wasn't great before and we wasn't set up to go through this and but we can do yeah. something about it once we know 
And that's one thing, like when my wife had a home birth and I'm bold enough to say it, which she don't want to get into the argument with people, but that I feel like that was the best thing. And you can clearly see the difference between my daughter and my son and their resiliency, their digest, her digestion versus his, the, you know, mood stabilization, the development, which there's nothing wrong with my son. Mm -hmm. He developed fine. Everything's great with him. But when you look at my daughter and after working with you as a patient and fixing her gut health and, you know, in between children, that was critical in my daughter coming out just amazing. I mean, she's mm -hmm. digesting food that my son, it would just, it just come out in his poop, you know, and she's, you know, right. and it looks like she's grown and there's just her mood stabilization, everything like that. So, I mean, it's amazing to see the results in between two children. And it really is. I mean, I have three children and before my third child, there's a big gap between my second and my third. It, before my third child was born, that's when I did all the work to get better to heal myself and, and to find find the answers. Um, he, I didn't birth him at home, but I birthed him by myself. Um, you know, I sat in the hospital on the bouncy ball and um, finally got in the bed like 10 minutes before he was born and the nurse just walked in and caught him. That was wow. it. And that was only because I couldn't talk my husband into a home birth. <laughs> um, but, but the, but the difference, the differences are, you know, with my first child, I only breastfed him for two months because I didn't know any better. They told me that, you know, formula was fine. It was just as good. So yeah. I had to go back to work. Um, he was only breastfed for two months. And uh, I know nobody wants to hear this, but he had, you know, every vaccine on the schedule. And um, he started having ear infections after his two month um, vaccines. And then he had ear infections every two months for, you know, the next two years. Um, very, lot, very unhealthy. Um, lots of mood issues as he got older. Um, had a lot of weight gain issues in his, um, in his elementary and middle school years. And um, then in response to a toxic mold exposure at the same time that I had mine, he developed psoriasis. My second child um, developed Hashimoto's when she was 11. She um, was breastfed for a year, vaginally born, every vaccine on the schedule. Um, she, didn't, she didn't get the ear infections that my son got, um, but she got molluscum contagiosum, which is a virus that lasted forever. We thought she was gonna just die with it in her 90s. Um, and then lots of mood issues, lots of depression, anxiety kinds of things, and um, had to start medication for thyroid problems early. Um, so then compare that, and I was not healthy at all right, yeah. when, I, when I was pregnant. Um, and then with my third child, not born at home, but almost, uh, breastfed for three and a half years, vaginally born. Um, he's never had a vaccine. He's never had an antibiotic. He unfortunately was given, um, he was given some bad epigenetic code from my husband. He has MTHFR and some other things. So he had tongue tie and um, he has a narrow airway. And we did have to finally remove his tonsils because um, the, the tonsils were fine, but his airway was so narrow. And that's, that's something genetic that was passed yeah. on and just... Um, so we did have to have his tonsils removed because he had some sleep apnea. But other than that, 
not not a single health problem never been sick with anything other than a cold or a gi bug ne you know just completely different experience of course um no mood no mood issues unless some moron gives him red food dye and then he definitely has some mood issues but that doesn't happen very often um so j vastly different experiences but um the epigenetics it's really interesting but the epigenetics that affect tongue tie and narrow airway and a recessed chin are associated with mthfr but also associated with how much food that was difficult to chew your ancestors were exposed to so if you have to chew hard fibrous food regularly every time you eat um, then you do not turn on the recession chin gene but if you eat a lot of processed foods that don't require a lot of serious chewing then you end up with recessed chin narrow airway and tongue tie wow. um, so if you if you go back and look at um and I forget the doctor's name, but he went to all these tribal areas where um, they had not been exposed to any processed food. They were eating their native diet that had been eaten for years and years and years. None of those people needed braces. They had perfectly aligned teeth. They had jaws that lined up with their nose. Um, their airways were open and beautiful. Nobody snored. Nobody had sleep apnea. It looked like they had had dental care their whole life and they never had because they were chewing hard fibrous foods every time they ate. And so their bodies did not devolve into weak recessed chins yeah. from processed food. Was that in the fifties? He was a dentist and then his son died or something. And then he got that doctor you're talking about. I don't know about his son. I can't remember his name, but it, he, he contributed a lot to the nourished traditions. Um, group and also oh weston price yes weston that's, price. Yeah. that's mm -hmm. his name yeah mm -hmm. yep. we're, th we're thinking and about the, the same the, people same person yeah same guy so um and and he was one of the first people to also say um hey real whole fat grass-fed yeah butter might actually be good for you yeah might have some things in it you need yeah a little bit huh and not low fat and <laughs> drift and toxic mm -hmm. Well, look, I'm not going to keep you any longer. I really appreciate you getting on here and talking. You shared great content. And thank you again for helping me with my health and my wife's health and my family. I mean, it, it really makes a big difference. And um, I hope, I really hope that we can spend more time together and, you know, we can, I love working with you out of all the, you know, nurse practitioners I've worked with. You've been the, the best one, my favorite one, because I have actionable data. There's one client that I got from you <clears throat> that come with a stack of lab work like this. And you know who I'm talking about. I don't have to say her name. But it was like, whoa. She goes, you want to read this? And I'm like, no, nah, but I will. And I mean, but she made, you can look through the her history and you can see progressive, you know, improvements and she's learning along the way. And, you know, that I just, I love that fact of, of how you are committed to it and you're not just treating symptoms and you know you'll go and some people shy away or they're kind of nervous or they're distant on something like you know estrogen dominance or breastfeeding people are like don't do it just gonna detox or you're gonna mess up this or you can't be i mean they're freaking out they're like run away from it mm -hmm. any risk mm -hmm. and it's not that you take mm -hmm. risk in a negative way 
but you are you do the extra work to figure out what's actually risk, what's reward, what's worth the challenge. And I mean, that's the same way with nutrition. I, I actually ask people to test things and eat things like there's a, a, a mold client that was like that. I was like, you're going to eat something that's got mold in it. I'm sorry. But if you stop eating, you're going to die. <laughs> the mold is going to kill you. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, there's right. a hormetic response right. to some mold. I mean, yeah, you can't just breathe it, eat it, live in it. But I mean, we all eat some moldy stuff getting over mold if we've been through that or bad fungal issues. So, you know, that's just part of it. But you are. Yeah, and they're, they're different. They're different species. So it's, yeah. that's a whole different conversation, which I, whole, I'm happy to have. But yeah. And maybe I, I would love for you to be on in the future and talk about environment and your experience with it and just actual things people can do immediately, like clean up your water, air filters, things of that nature, if you want to. And sure. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Thank you for this. I'll let you go. I, I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody gets something out of this. And do you want people to contact you or you want to, I know you're two and a half job, three jobs killing it uh <laughs> but let's uh let's see what happens when you post it and we'll figure something out does okay, that sound good cool. yeah sounds good to me thank okay. you thank you tommy you're welcome